Hello and welcome to the History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Benjamin Wheaton. Dr. Wheaton's new book, Suffering Not Power, Atonement in the Middle Ages, was recently released with Lexham University Press. Um, Dr. Wheaton was kind enough to talk with us about his thesis in this book, uh, which seeks to explore how the atonement was understood uh, in medieval writings. Um, and why we often get this wrong. So basically, Dr. Wheaton goes through the Christus Victor kind of myth uh, that was uh, put forward by Gustave Allen and seeks to show that actually something closer to substitutionary atonement was understood long before um, the, the reformers uh, kind of came up with this view. So uh, we talk with him uh, a little bit about that and what that means. Um, and uh, just really appreciated getting to talk with him a little bit about this. Um, if you'd heard my previous intros, you might know that we're releasing these a little bit out of order. Um, we had some corrupted audio in the conversation with Tom and Trevor, so I'm working on recovering that. Uh, but I thought I'd go ahead and release this episode so that we could have something out this week, but we will uh, fix the audio uh, in the conversation with Tom and Trevor and get that one back in line. Um, so thank you all for your patience. Uh, thank you also to Grant Bellchamber, who's doing great work in Oxford um, and also still helping me edit and get this podcast out. Um, so with no further ado, um, here's my conversation with Dr. Wheaton. If you enjoy this conversation, please uh, follow up with us on Facebook, on Twitter, um, or on our webpage, ahistoryofchristiantheology.com. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week. If I remember correctly, we had we were we kind of did some prolegomena, um, mm -hmm. and we were talking a little bit about the background of sort of penal substitutionary atonement, some of these things. Um, but we were just starting to to get into the the figures that you consider in the book. Um, and so, uh, do you like? Do you want to just start? Um, I, th I guess by chronological order, it would have been Cesarius, Dante, and then Haimo, maybe. Uh, but the book, no. Cesarius, Haimo, then Dante. But the book doesn't do that. So we, if you can go either in chronological yeah. order or we can go in the order the book tre uh, you treats them. There's, yeah, a rationality, there's a rationale to that. Yeah, we'll, we'll go along with the book then. So who are the okay. figures that you are considering uh, as we think about this? Right. So I would have to have three figures from the end of the Middle Ages, the beginning of the Middle Ages, and the middle of the Middle Ages, or at least what I consider to be the middle of the Middle Ages. Um, not everyone does. Uh, yeah. So the first person I wanted to choose was the end, namely someone who is closest to the Reformation, but still sort of the most, I guess you could say, developed, for want of a better term, mm -hmm. um, in that you had the greatest uh, sort of sort of the mature consideration of the middle of, of medieval Western theology. And for that, I chose Dante Alighieri, uh, the great Italian poet, uh, who, of course, wrote famous, most famous for his works, The Divine Comedy, um, but also wrote a plethora of other works, which are uh, very much worth considering. And, of course, he was very popular in his own day as well. So it's worth not just he is useful, not just for saying what he thought, but for what people around him thought of what he thought. Mm. Um, so and he was also sort of thoroughly mainstream figure. So Dante, again, uh, wrote end of 13th, beginning of 14th century in Florence and Verona and Ravenna and those um, areas and very well educated in the Thomist traditions, but also just in the full panoply of medieval theology, medieval Latin theology, I should say. Um, and he was very a major uh, sort of player in Italian politics 
um, of the period. And so I felt that such, again, a, a nice mainstream person who, generally speaking, is not studied for his take on the atonement. But his take on the atonement is, in fact, quite unique. Mm. And uh, it's worth uh, paying a fair amount of attention to. I remember reading him um, years ago when I studied him in undergrad and, and saying to myself, wait a second, this, this, this is, sounds almost exactly like penal substitution. What's going on here? Um, that's that's was the was one of the ways in which things started to percolate for me. Yeah, so that's Dante, the first and latest figure. Uh, then I went skipped back about uh, eight hundred years or so to the beginning of the Middle Ages, in uh, about uh, I guess early five hundreds, first few decades of the, of the sixth century, with uh, Caesarius of Arles. And Caesarius of Arles um, was not a poet like Dante, but he was a very uh, sort of influential bishop, Gallo-Roman bishop of the of late antiquity and the early, um, and just after Roman power uh, retreated from um, Gaul. So he served first under the Visigothic kings, and then under the Ostrogoths, and then eventually under the Franks. So he is a very useful figure for looking at sort of, and again, at the center of the politics and society of Southern France at this point in time. And he was, but again, and also a representative of two major streams in, um, in Gaul at the time, which was the ascetic um, monastic stream led by, represented by people such as John Cassian mm -hmm. um, and the uh, monastery of the Ile de Lorraine. And so he, he was spent some time in Lorraine before moving to Arles. Um, so very keen on asceticism and, and monasticism, and also somebody who was uh, very, very Augustinian mm -hmm. um, and uh, came under the influence of an African theologian by the name of Julianus Pomerius and became one of the staunchest supporters of Augustine's doctrines of grace um, in the early uh, 6th century. Uh, but in addition to this, he was a major ecclesiastical reformer. He was insistent, one of his main things was insisting that the common people should be allowed as much access to the faith and to the scriptures as possible. So he reformed preaching. He wrote many, many sermons. He has a huge corpus of sermons that were incredibly influential throughout the Middle Ages. And in many ways, so the fathers were transmitted to the Middle Ages and after primarily, not primarily, but in a large part through sermons mm -hmm. and who sort of, um, digested their teaching and made put it into um, understandable form both for whether clerical audiences or lay audiences and Caesarius was a major figure in doing this um, and he so one of his sermons is on the atonement why Christ had to die and why he couldn't just rescue us through power and in that he expresses um, uh, the opinion that Christ's death on the cross is because um, the devil um, sort of was hoist by his own petard, the thing, <laughs> in that he performs the very sacrifice that was necessary for the forgiveness of sin for men's forgiveness before God. Um, and so he lost his own power. So here we have a kind of a, of a Christus Victor view, but a Christus Victor view, which is dependent um, upon, which is still theocentric, dependent upon mm -hmm. uh, Christ's sacrifice. So that's just one sermon. Um, but there's a couple others I, of his contemporaries I look at and, uh, because he adapted to anonymous sermons uh, written earlier for this and how he adapts them is very interesting. He in fact does so in a way that 
sort of corrects their uh, non-Augustinian um, faults and very sort of focuses on the thing. So especially with regard to the to the devil's rights, um, he's very keen on ensuring that the devil does not actually have rights over us, but that rather he is our fellow criminal. Mm. And that if uh, God ha can forgive us just without, not, without anything, then he, then he ought to forgive the devil too. Um, and of <laughs> yeah. course... And I, well, I, I, you know, I, when I was um, reading through it, you, you know, the quote from Caesarius is pretty good. I think it's on 116, uh, Christ the Lord without any guilt, without any blame, underwent a penal sentence. The innocent man is crucified without sin. And then this is the point that you are making. The devil is made guilty by the death of an innocent man. The devil is made guilty by bringing the cross upon a righteous man who owed nothing. The death of Christ benefited man. What Adam owed to God, Christ paid by undergoing death, having been made without any doubt a sacrifice for the uh, sin of men and their race. Uh, just as Paul, blessed Paul taught, Christ loved us and handed himself over for us an offering and sacrificial victim to God in a pleasing aroma. Um, it's a pretty yeah. good summary of, of kind of where, you know, uh, I guess Caesarius is on, on this uh, yeah. a score. Yeah, so remember going through that. I was reading Caesarius for my um, dissertation for part of my dissertation work, and just uh, seeing this sermon and going, "Wow, that's a, that's a pretty good, you know, uh, explanation of what's going on here." So then, um, after Caesarius, by the way, if anyone's interested, uh, I look at Caesarius more in my forthcoming book in Brill, specifically uh, his involvement in the Council of Orange, of whom mm -hmm. he was the instigator. Um, but. Uh, the next person, the last person I look at. So the first is Dante. Look at him with, you know, Anselmi and satisfaction. Second, um, Caesarius of Arles, typical patristic Christus victor. And then lastly, I look at the person who I think really sort of encapsulates what I think the core of the atonement was for the medieval um, Christian. And that was sacrifice, which is with Haimo of Auxerre. Mm. Haimo is one of the least known, but wow. most important of the medieval of medieval biblical exegetes. So Haimo of Auxerre lived in the ninth century um, from about so 810, 820 to about 870 or so. And he was a monk from probably from a very young age and uh, was became one of the main teachers in the Abbey of Saint-Germain in the city of Auxerre which is a very important abbey um, under the patronage, have the direct patronage of the Carolingian kings. And of course, one of the major aspects, the major aspect of the Carolingian um, sort of intellectual reforms started by Charlemagne, but carried on by his um, sons and affected by that, his successors, was that, was biblical exegesis. Mm. Um, we talked about them preserving the classics, which they did to an extent, but the main effort was very much on Biblical exegesis, and so Haimo of Auxerre had these has the second largest output of commentaries of any of the Carolingians. The largest is uh, Ravanus Maurus, but uh, mm. he wasn't nearly. But his works weren't nearly as popular as those of Haimo's. Haimo um, of Auxerre's commentaries. We have more manuscripts surviving of his commentaries than of any other, almost any other author. And his commentaries were also adapted. So they became a major foundation of the great Glossa Ordinaria, which is the major later medieval commentary on the Bible. And his sermons, which were also so, sort of accompany his 
um, the, the, the commentaries, again, were adapted and used and just flowed everywhere. They're so ubiquitous, as I think is part of the reason they've sort of flown under the radar. Mm. Um, is that so? And what's interesting, too, is that for Caesarius, I mean, not for Caesarius, for Hymo, uh, what, what we can see in his in the surviving works is actually we get sort of an in-depth glimpse of what a classroom in the Carolingian monastery was like. These are all his lecture notes combined, sort of his considered lecture notes with the additions of the primary text they were using. And so actually we have one of his students actually recorded, has a, has a list of his sort of original lecture stuff. And then we have the primary text which he was using and then Kaimo sort of combined them in his commentaries and adapts them in that way. So um, it's a pity we don't, one of the great projects of scholarship that needs to happen in the next uh, couple of decades is a, is a good critical edition of Haimo Vaxir's commentary on the, on the Pauline letters. Because if we could do that, it's a huge task because there's hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts and they're all so different. I mean, it's just, it, it, it creates a crazy morass. Um, mm. But it's interesting is that we could actually get a really clear glimpse, I think, of what exactly was going on in a Carolingian classroom by one of its best and greatest teachers of biblical exegesis. Um, so Haimo was again, very influential, and his most popular work was the commentary on the letters of Paul. Mm. Um, and of course, he wrote, of whom, of course, Hebrews was included in that corpus in this period. And so I decided to look at his commentary on Romans. Um, and his comment, especially his commentary on Hebrews, because one of the things you interesting to look at for the for what medieval Christians thought of the atonement was what was how they interpreted Hebrews and parts of Romans. That's where we get our doctrine of the atonement from, and at least to a significant degree. Right. So why don't we figure out what they thought? Uh, so I looked at his so then so again so I looked at his commentaries and did some. Uh, sort of exegesis of the exegesis, figuring out what he thought. And what he thought was, it was a sacrifice by God to God, a propitiation and expiation. There's some, you know, details of how how, how they both work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, and, and then that's, uh, that's pretty, you know, pretty fascinating. Uh, I was trying to think, if, I was trying to find a, a quote uh, that I, if anything that I'd underlined from from him, there's a, there's a lot of, um, a lot of stuff going on there, but, uh, yeah, well, and, and so do we have, I mean, so to some extent, like I, you know, I think uh, when I think sort of more theologically, um, about these questions, you know, uh, like one of the great critiques from, um, TF Torrance was that the Latin doctrine, uh, was overly emphasized, like overly emphasized these sort of forensic accounts. Um, and so like, you know, is that the only way that that uh, medieval Christians thought about the atonement is in these kind of uh, 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 penal ways? Or, you know, like, I mean, I know there's been some work that shows that Thomas was interested in sort of deification uh, and other kinds of other ways of explaining, you know, what it means for Christians to be united to God. So where like, you know, uh, to some extent we could say like, yeah, they, you know, they understood that that sacrifice is a way that uh, the work of Christ is talked about in Romans and Hebrews. But that doesn't mean that that's the only way uh, that one could talk about such things. You have any thoughts to, you know, like, is this is this a very like specific picture of interpretation of one kind of text? Or is this like the the, the overarching view um, in a sense? Is T.F. Torrance 
right. This is just how Latins thought. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to venture an opinion on that subject on the whole. Um, I thought it was very specific. Um, I think that, uh, I'm going to say is I think they were faithful readers of scripture okay. and, um, therefore, uh, what they thought and what they talked about would be governed by what they read. Um, mm. I think so. It, it, a sacrifice isn't necessarily all forensic either. It is very much sort of our, our body, our sinful nature being cleansed. Mm. Um, and then our being baptized with him. A big aspect of course was baptism. As you know, they um, placed a much greater emphasis upon the act of baptism than we do. So one thing of high modes, um, emphases is in Romans, for example, is that faith is necessary, but uh, it requires baptism. Mm. Unless, of course, you are martyred and then your own blood will provide the baptismal um, waters. And that's, of course, yeah, that's so Augustine. That's Augustine. Um, right. So, you know, baptismal regeneration. Uh, and, of course, he also says baptism doesn't work unless you have faith. So, it, you know, it goes both ways. Um, that's very, so, and so in that sense, we're baptized and therefore we're united with Christ and therefore our human nature is cleansed. So part of the sacrifice of expiation is that it cleanses the human nature, um, mm. all human natures that are united to Christ, which is, you know, I mean, the imputation of righteousness in a sense is the Protestant, I guess, version of this. But of course, Augustine held to this position as well. So in that sense, being united with him, we are cleansed from sin because, his, um, because of his sacrifice. Yeah, that's really helpful. I like that idea, right, about, you know, because I do think when we tend to, you know, talk about the imputation of righteousness, uh, these mm -hmm. sort of, you know, Lutheran categories and understandings uh, that, that we, you know, it could be sort of, if you want to say, overly spiritualized. Um, and mm -hmm. we forget that there is a very... Uh, there's a very, you know, bodily, uh, physical nature to this, right? Where mm -hmm. to some extent, like what we need from Christ isn't just that God would, uh, in, in sort of the Lutheran way, look at us differently. Um, but, but we actually, our bodies need to be transformed from something that is, you know, as Paul would say, is corrupt to be brought into incorruption. Um, yeah. And so, I, so that's, a, I think that's kind of helpful, you know, maybe in that respect, one way that we could look at someone like uh, uh, Haimo or some of these other characters and see the ways in which they, they actually did, you know, they, they weren't overly concerned with just uh, the legality question, uh, but it's but it is very much a, a bodily and physical question. Yeah, yeah, especially in that. Uh, of course, remember these were um, Haimo and Caesarius were both deeply affected by the ascetic um, monastic tradition, which placed a great emphasis upon the necessity of disciplining the body, uh, the, the flesh, and its desires. Um, now, obviously, they're both uh, Augustinian monastics, which meant that they didn't that they thought it wasn't ever possible in the present life to do so completely. And that, um, you know, not everyone could do it. And that it's perfectly possible not to be a monk and to be a good Christian as well. Still, um, the fact that they were influenced by this, and it's pretty clear they were, and that they viewed it as a good thing to do, um, I think, uh, you know, and the necessity of regular, of, of regular ticking of the Eucharist and so on and so forth. So, yeah. yeah. Again, this is all bound up with, um, the late antique and, early, and, and uh, um, uh, sacramentalism. Now, there was a big debate in Carolingian period about the nature of the sacraments, of course, but mm. um, Lord's Supper. But I'm not sure exactly where Heimel stands on that. Uh, I could mm. find out, I guess. Uh, 
because uh, I am actually writing a trans doing a translation for Breppel's of um, Heimel's commentary on Romans at the moment. It's very long. Um, so I've been working on it for a while. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, uh, um, but yeah, there's lots of stuff. There's lots of questions, lots of theological questions we have. What did the medieval people think? What did the, what do you think in this period can be answered by looking at these sort of things that have been overlooked until now? Yeah. Well, and I guess the the one other sort of reception question is to some extent, you know, it's like I, I was actually looking at um, for a different project that I'm doing uh, the Jesus prayer. Uh, so Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It's called the the sort of the the, the center, like the um, what do they call the soul of orthodoxy um, or something like this. Um, but it turns out that it's uh, also prayed um in a lot of pilgrimage accounts, and it's included in the the uh, Jacob de Veragine's Golden Legend. Um, it seems to be much more popularly known uh, than anyone sort of comments on or recognizes in in the Latin. Um, and actually, the earliest uh, full form that we have is in Latin before Greek, even though it's considered this Greek prayer. But you know, what, I guess so. The the question that I'm trying to lead to is, how, why is it that we forget so quickly? Uh, people like Haimo or people, uh, you know, other sorts of things that that during the period were so seems so important, uh, maybe to more average Christians. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, but, you know, nowadays we only think, you know, we might know Dante's Inferno. We might know the name Thomas Aquinas, but the rest of it seems to, you know, the other ca two characters yeah. who are so influential have been lost. Uh, what what you know, any any thoughts on why we don't uh, pay more attention to these people? I would say twas ever thus, and that we always there's certain that well that's the question of reception history, isn't it? Yeah, Why do right. certain people become popular in certain eras and certain people fall out of popularity? So um, Aquinas was of course a genius, and therefore you can his works will survive. Same thing with you know Plato, his works survived because he was a genius, whereas the other philosophers whose works we don't have were not. Or another point of view, um, much of the classics we think of the classical canon is a creation because that it's, it is the canon. It is because those are the texts which were part of the canon of the late antique of the schools of the later Roman empire and their peculiar uh, tastes are what govern what we have. Um, so it, it's to a certain extent, I would say it's an accident of history. Some, sometimes mm -hmm. other times it's um, for other times, of course, it's also deliberate selection. Again, Aquinas is very influential and therefore still read um, Anselm is sort of central because he was central to certain other people, um, to, to many people and central to the understanding of the, uh, of, of the church as a whole in the later Middle Ages. I would say, though, that actually the commentaries of Haimo of Auxerre were very popular with the followers of John Huss. Oh, interesting. They were also well copied by the enemies of the followers of John Huss. So sort of, <laughs> he was used by both sides, which is an interesting. And that hasn't been studied. Actually, um, there's been no in-depth study of that interest of that phenomenon, but um, it's uh, it's been noted that we have manuscripts. There are lots of Czech manuscripts that are and Bohemian manuscripts that are of Haimo dating from this era, written in, in collections of both sides on that particular controversy. 
interesting. So for listeners who may not know, we, you know, at the at the podcast, we started trying to go through like the history of Christian theology, as it's called. We only ever got up to the fourth century. Um, so we have not talked a whole lot about John Huss and the Reformation. So uh, sort of, a, you know, could you give a little background why this is so important for more Protestant reform thinkers, Huss and maybe the question of Haimo? Well, Huss is usually considered to be a, a proto reformer, if you want to mm-hmm. use that term. Um, and sort of his ideas were, were frequently foreshadowings of what were the concerns that would eventually erupt with full force in the Reformation. Uh, and so his followers, too, especially, I, and when the Reformation came around, his followers identified themselves with the Reformation as well. Same thing with the other, I think, factions which emerged before, too. So sort of a both ways um, identification. Um, so, uh, of course, eventually Huss was burned, was famously burned at the stake. Uh, for for heresy, and but his followers can, persisted thereafter and were thorns in the side of the uh, emperors um, and the local rulers for many many for decades thereafter. Uh, and so, just that this is a major dis- pre-Reformation dispute, um, and the fact that Heimo's commentaries are so important uh, is an interesting facet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sort of maybe gave some. Uh... Uh, sort of a fuel to the fire uh, for thinkers like Huss. Yeah. I mean, it, it just reminds me that, uh, like, you know, we're talking about uh, 9th and 10th century um, and the reception of Augustine. There's always, you know, Erugina, uh is receives Augustine and tries to use elements of Augustine in his theology. Um, and, you know, there there's disputes over, you know, who receives Augustine correctly um, kind of all the way up through. And it sounds like there's something similar uh, with Haimo. I had no idea that, that he was so uh, disputed as well. Well, he was used by both sides yeah. that way. Um, yeah. Now, uh, Eryugin is an interesting figure, too. Of course, but uh, he uh, he got he was in, got into some trouble for some of his views, of course, um, because. But actually, I, I actually on the side note, I think actually that um, the whole uh, Carolingian controversy over grace and free will. There's a lot more to it mm-hmm. than uh, than people think. But uh, that's a, that's for another day. Yeah. Well, I, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're running up on an hour of time that we've spent together. Uh, so Dr. Wheaton, I really do appreciate, uh, you coming on the show. Um, I, and you know, it's, I think it, hopefully, at least in my mind, this has been a very helpful conversation just to remind, uh, myself and other listeners, how complex, uh, what we call the medieval period or the middle ages, uh, you know, how complex it really is and the sort of the different, um, trajectories and, uh, questions that are raised. Um, but, but also to some extent, you know, this is like, this is the fun of history is, is looking for, for some threads. Um, so we've seen, you know, we've sort of seen controversies, we've seen disputes, uh, but, but what your book makes clear um, is is that there has always been a a kind of of God at the center um, of the atonement, right? Um, and so, you know, where um, Gustave Allen uh, may have overemphasized the role of the devil, uh, what your work, uh, Jean Riviere, um, and 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 the look at these figures shows is that that actually there there's more of a thread. Uh, than uh, than people may realize. Um, so I, I'll let you have the final word. You care to comment on 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 why you know how to handle that tension of the disputes, but then maybe one more to unify some more unifying threads. Yeah, just uh, that they were readers of the scriptures, mm. and that uh, 
us always, like um, we do, they considered the scriptures the final authority on the matter. And so ultimately it's about exegesis and uh, understanding with the aid of the spirit, what the scriptures teach on the atonement and everything the scriptures say is true and therefore ought to be um, thing. So, so, what, so how they read the scriptures is of relevance to us because as faithful readers, they have much to uh, give to them as we to them. I'm going to finish actually with a quote that I put at the end of my of chapter five, um, which is from an anonymous sermon from the end of the fifth century, um, which I think neatly, um, and this is from a very, from a popular sermon on the Apostles' Creed, which says, for the righteous man was condemned in place of the unrighteous man, and the penalty that was owed by sinners he himself received without sin, so that he might both take away the penalty and destroy the sins of those in whose place he was punished. Mm. Which is not exactly penal substitution, but it's a good encapsulation of what propitiation and expiation does. So sacrifice is the center, I suggest, of the medieval atonement. And if you see that as the, as the dominant thread, because that, after all, I think is what the atonement is in the scriptures. Um, so. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wheaton. It's been a pleasure to have you on the History of Christian Theology. It's a pleasure to be on here. Thank you very much. <laughs>